today. Let's open with a word of prayer and let's dig into the word. Heavenly Father, we thank you, we praise you, we love you, Lord. As we go to your word now, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. And Lord, as we look at the life of King Manasseh, a man who had a godly father and a godly great-grandfather, but also a man who was caught up in the evil of this world. And Lord, just the picture that whether we were raised with godly parents or ungodly parents, we're all responsible for our own choices that we make. Every one of us will be accountable for the king, before the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. I thank you for everyone who's here, none by chance, all by a divine appointment. Thank you for the many that are watching on live stream right now. We ask these things in your holy and your precious name. We pray and all God's people said... So if you've been here for Chronicles, or if you haven't, let me catch you up quickly. Chronicles, we know. First Chronicles is really looking at the life of Solomon and the kings that followed him, or David, excuse me. And Second Chronicles was King Solomon. This letter was written, these letters were written by Ezra to the children of Israel who'd been in bondage in Babylon for 70 years and are now returning back to Jerusalem. And he's basically giving them a history lesson of what took place in the place that they're coming back to why that place, again, was taken captive, why the people were taken captive, and also just to prepare them to understand where they were going and the, God, the plan that God had for Israel and for Judah in this case. So the 10 northern nations or northern tribes were called Israel. The two southern tribes are called Judah. We know by that point, we get to chapter thir- uh, 33, the Assyrians have already overrun Israel and taken them captive. Judah We've, the last four weeks, if you were here, we were looking at King Hezekiah. Hezekiah's father was a man by the name of Ahaz, who was an extremely wicked man. So wicked that he turned the temple into a, a trash heap. He literally dumped trash into the temple. He then boarded it up so that nobody could worship the true and living God. And then they started worshiping all the false gods, and they were offering their children as sacrifices to Molech, and moral depravity was running rampant. And so Ahaz dies and his son Hezekiah comes along and Hezekiah is nothing like his father. What does he do? When he becomes king, he's a young man. He's in his 20s. And the Assyrians are mounting up on the northern border ready to invade. And the Assyrians were known to be the most ruthless of all armies on the planet. When they conquered a village or a city, they would take the people that were within the city and they would decapitate them and pile all their heads out in in little pyramids and piles outside the city to warn anybody else, don't mess with us. So the Assyrians are about to come down and Hezekiah also is dealing with all the idol worship that's taking place. And so as soon as he becomes king, he does something that is so amazing and is such a great example for all of us. He says, I'm not going to worry about any of that until we get right with God. So the first thing he did was he cleaned up the temple. Then he repaired it. Then he restored all the furnishings. Then he reestablished the sacrificial system. And then he celebrated Passover for the first time in 200 years. They started to celebrate Passover. Then they had the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then they gathered together to worship the Lord. Then he reinstated the Levites and all of the priests. And so he made the conscious decision. It doesn't matter what else is going on around me. We need to get right with God first before we do anything else. And that's a word for every one of us. Amen? That no matter what trial, what what turmoil, what difficulty you may be going through, the first thing on the agenda should always be getting right with God. 
And once we're right with him, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Then you'll remember that they ended up fighting the Assyrians, and even though he got the army ready, he mounted them all up, God sent one angel that came down and killed 185,000 Assyrians, and they didn't even have to lift a finger. Why? Well, they were pursuing God, and God took care of them. And guys, as we pursue the Lord, we can trust that we will never go through anything alone. So we had four chapters of Hezekiah. And if you were here last week, let me just read the last couple of verses of chapter 32. And it says there, verse 32 of chapter 32, now the rest of the act of Hezekiah and his goodness, indeed, they are written in the vision of Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amos, in the book of the kings of Judah of Israel. So Hezekiah rested with his fathers, and they buried him in the upper tombs of the sons of David. And all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem honored him at his death. Then Manasseh, his son, reigned in his place. So Hezekiah has been a long-standing godly king. We saw at the end of his life, he made some bad choices, but overall, he was a godly man who reestablished the worship of the true and living God. Now, tonight, we're going to look at Manasseh. Manasseh is going to reign for 55 years, and you could argue he is going to be the most wicked king that has ever inhabited Judah. There were more wicked kings like you know, Ahab in Israel, but you could argue he's the most wicked king. Isn't it crazy? So Ahaz is wicked and his son is godly. Hezekiah is godly and his son is wicked. And the hope would be as Christians, we all hope that if we raise our kids in a Christian home, the hope would be that they would all follow Jesus and love the Lord. And certainly the Bible has some words to encourage us where it says, you know, train up a child in a way that he should go. When he's old, he will not depart from it. But ultimately, God has no grandchildren because everyone has to have their own relationship with Almighty God. So grab your outline. I titled the message, God has no grandchildren. And we all have free will and we all choose to repent or reject Jesus. You have faith or unbelief, there's no neutral ground. You're either for me or against me, Jesus said. You're either a friend of God or an enemy of God. And here's what we will see in tonight's text. Because even though Manasseh, I'm going to give it away. Even though Manasseh is literally the most wicked man on the planet for maybe up to 50 years, so vile, so ridiculously vile, as Hezekiah was godly, he was ungodly to the extreme. The good news is at the end of the chapter, Manasseh repents. And I believe we'll see Manasseh in heaven. And one of the things I want us to see from tonight's text is nobody's beyond salvation. Amen? Anybody can be, again, until you draw your last breath or take the mark of the beast like we see in Revelation, you can still be saved. And so here's the outline for tonight. God has no grandchildren. Sometimes godly parents raise kids that reject God. That's hurtful to think about, isn't it? You know, the Bible says in 1 John, I know no greater joy than to know my children walk in the truth. There's nothing I want more than my kids and grandkids to love Jesus. And it would be a wonderful thing if they did, but sadly, that's not always the case. We all have free will. We're all responsible for where we are with the Lord. Not only do sometimes godly parents raise kids that reject God, by your fruit, they will know you. See, it's one thing to pray a prayer and walk an aisle. It's another thing to respond emotionally, maybe at a baptism and go get baptized. And those are all wonderful things. But if the salvation is real, if the repentance is true, it will be more than an emotional moment. It will be a change that impacts you for the rest of your life. You won't just, 
you know, walking out, pray a prayer, and continue to live the same way. You now be convicted by the Holy Spirit. Your priorities will change. Your passions will change. And so we're going to see that in tonight's text by your fruit. They will know you, whether fruit of fellowship or fruit of rebellion. You can't say you love God and walk in open rebellion against him. And if you truly love the Lord, you will be in fellowship with him. Number three, God loves us enough to do whatever it takes to get our attention. Manasseh, Manasseh is going to have opportunities to be redeemed, but he's going to continually just disregard what God has to say. He's not going to listen to the Lord. He's filled with pride. Anybody witnessing to anybody like that right now in your life? I witness to a lot of people. I've got a lot of people like that in my life where they're arrogant. They think they know better than God. It's so heartbreaking to talk to them and they'll go, well, you know, you Christians and God, you know, God says, you know, follow me or burn. What kind of God is that? And they just go off and they think they know better than God. And if that's who he is, I want nothing to do with him. And the sad part is when you hear things like that, it's heartbreaking. But here's one of the prayers I often pray. Lord, do whatever it's going to take to get their attention. Amen? I've prayed that for people that I've loved great deal in my life, and I've seen the Lord do it. Some that were so far off the deep end. Lord, they need to get arrested and go to prison. Bring it. If they need to get hit in a car accident so they end up in the hospital and recognize their own mortality and surrender their life to you, Lord, do what is necessary. In tonight's text, God is going to do what is necessary to get Manasseh's attention. This prideful man who is living the most wicked life of all men on the planet and leading all of God's people into this wickedness, God is going to reach down from heaven and he's going to use the Assyrians to bring righteous judgment upon him, to drag him away, and he's finally going to come to a place where he's at the end of himself and he's going to cry out to God. So point number three, God loves us enough to do whatever it takes to get our attention. Number four, true repentance is reflected by a change of heart and behavior. It's kind of like point number two, by your fruit they will know you. Again, it's when we surrender our lives to the Lord, everything about us should change. You know one of the number one stumbling blocks for unbelievers to becoming Christians? Christians. The stumbling block isn't Christ, it's Christians. When I talk to people, I had a conversation just this week. Well, this Christian lady told me this, and this Christian man told me this, and this Christian person told me this. And I said, who cares what any of those people said? What does Jesus say? Because when you stand before Almighty God on a judgment day, you can't blame them. It's, it's between you and the Lord. And so as believers, we are called to be salt and light. And we are called to represent the Lord well. And if we're truly repented, it will be reflected in a change of heart. When we surrender our lives fully to the Lord, again, everything about us will change. Point number five, no one is so good that they don't need to be saved. And no one is so bad that they're beyond salvation. If you talk to a person who lives an exemplary life, so someone will come to me and say, well, what about like Mother Teresa? You know, she did so many good works. Is she in heaven? I said, I don't know. Where's she at with Jesus? That's all that matters. I'm glad that you help orphans. I'm glad that your life is true, but that's a wonderful thing. Those are good things. You don't get saved by your good works. Amen? Now, good works can be and often are fruit of salvation, but you can't be so good that you don't need to, be, to repent. Guys, if we could get into heaven on our own, why did Jesus go to the cross? He, had to, he went to the cross because none of us is good enough that we don't need to be saved. But here's the flip side. None of us is bad enough that we're beyond saving. Saul of Tarsus, persecutor of Christians, becomes the apostle Paul. Manasseh is the Old Testament 
Saul of Tarsus. He's the most wicked man. I'm fully convinced if you went to all the people that lived in his day and said, if there's anybody that is too wicked and too far gone to ever get right with God, who would it be? I think Manasseh would win all the votes in a landslide. But here's the good news. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And he that knows us best loves us most. Amen? So you can't be so good that you don't need to be saved, and you can't be so bad that you're beyond saving. And then finally, there can be no greater heartache than living a life that leads your children away from the Lord. You know, the first ministry we all have is our family. For me, it begins with my wife, Lynette, and then my children and my grandchildren. And that's the ministry I'm accountable for. When I do marriage counseling, I often say to the men, if you want to know how you're doing spiritually, go look at your wife. Now, again, there's exceptions to the rule, but if a godly man is loving her, laying down his life for her, serving her, caring for her, leading her spiritually, praying with her, praying for her, being the spiritual leader in the home, blessing her, then she's going to blossom and grow. And if that woman is hurting and broken, it's a reflection often, not always, because sometimes you can have a godly man and a woman that wants nothing to do with it. But the reality is in most Christian marriages, you can see a lot about what kind of man the husband is by looking at his wife. How is she doing? Well, there can be no greater heartache than if we live a life that drives our wife and or our children away from God. If we live in such a way that they want nothing to do with the God that we serve because we're one person at church on Sunday and we're somebody else when we get home. And see, Manasseh is such a wicked man that it, you know, he, he, he leads Judah away from the Lord. He's leading an entire nation away from the Lord because of his behavior. So let's begin to looking at uh, God has no grandchildren. We all have free will. Choose to repent or reject Jesus. First of all, sometimes godly parents raise kids that reject God. It says there in verse one. So as we come to this point, as again, Hezekiah has just passed away. He was a truly good king. After the biggest victory in life, when God destroyed 185,000 Assyrians, Hezekiah was told that he was going to die. He pleaded with the Lord, and the Lord gave him 15 more years. During those 15 more years of life that he gave him, he and his wife gave birth to a son by the name of Manasseh. Look at verse 1. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. Manasseh's name means causing to forget. He will be known as the worst of all the kings in the southern kingdom of Judah, and again, at 12 years old, this would mean that he was born during that extra time of life that God granted Hezekiah. Now, because we know how it ends, we wouldn't say this, but you'd almost have to wonder if Hezekiah knew how rotten his son was going to be, that he might have just said, just take me now. I don't want that kid to be born. He's going to be a train wreck. Literally for 55 years, he is the most vile human being on the planet and he's leading God's people. And so it breaks the heart, your heart when you see this. And, and Manasseh is going to reign for 55 years, which goes to show you a long reign doesn't necessarily mean that the guy's living a holy life. Or if somebody dies young, doesn't mean they lived an unholy life. Amen? God numbers our days. And so he's got 55 years. And again, had Hezekiah, a good king, been able to foresee the wickedness of his son, he would have doubtlessly had no desire to recover from his sickness. Better by far to die childless than to beget a son like Manasseh would prove to be. You know, while we earnestly pray for our children and raise them in the truth, 
It would be wonderful if every child raised in a Christian home would grow up to love, serve, and follow Jesus, but sadly, that's not always the case. Hezekiah is his dad. Isaiah, the prophet, is Hezekiah's father-in-law. So that means that Manasseh, the most wicked vile king that ever lived, his dad was Hezekiah and his grandfather was Isaiah. Do you think he had some godly influence in his life? He had Isaiah, the prophet, the mighty man of God, as his grandfather. Do you think Isaiah's speaking into his life? You have Hezekiah. Again, he watched him. He watched how God used him mightily. He watched how he had, re, he had reinstated worship and the sacrificial system and God was being glorified and all of the idols have been torn down. It's been right in front of him. He's had a front row seat to it. But the sad part is we all have free will and Judah's never going to recover from 55 years of Manasseh. They're never going to recover. Judah's never going to be the same after 55 years of this guy. Manasseh's reign was both, both remarkably long and remarkably evil. A long reign, again, or longevity of life is not necess necessarily evidence of a blessing or approval from God. Manasseh is named in the writings of the Assyrians as one of the leaders that was giving homage to the Assyrians. He aligned himself with the Assyrians. The Assyrians were enemies of God. His father had fought them, and God, well, God fought on their, his behalf, and 185,000 were wiped out by an angel. Now he's aligning himself with the enemies of God. Guys, who are you aligned with? We minister to the world, but we have no fellowship with it. We love everybody. We want to see everybody saved. We should be the most kind, loving, gracious people on the planet, but just know that you're going to become like the people that you link arms with, the people that you hang out with. That's why the Bible tells us that bad company corrupts good morals. In 2 Kings, it speaks of the name of his mother. And his mother's name is Hephzibah. And this is the daughter of Isaiah. So Isaiah has this daughter and the name he gives her is my delight is in her. So Isaiah is a godly man. He's holding his baby girl and he names her my delight is in her. And she ends up getting married to Hezekiah and they both really love the Lord and they're both being Christ-like, you know, godly examples and doing the right thing. And here they have this son, Manasseh. And Manasseh just goes tilt off in the opposite direction and, and, go, and is going to do everything directly opposite of what he witnessed his parents do. Now, again, I know we like to hang on to verses, and we, and we can. They're in the Bible that raise up a child in the way that he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Certainly, that's an exhortation for us to raise our kids right. But in the end, God has no grandchildren. Our kids don't go to heaven because we're saved. Our kids will go to heaven if they give their life to Jesus. Amen? And again, I know that's weighty for some of us. So Isaiah uses this name in one of the prophecies about Jerusalem. In Isaiah 62, he says, You no longer will be termed forsaken, nor shall your land any more be desolate, but you shall be called Hephzibah, and your land Beulah, for the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. He's prophesying about God's blessing upon Jerusalem, 
that that time would come when he would be blessing Jerusalem. And he uses his daughter's name, saying God will delight in her. So you've got a, you've got a godly man in Hezekiah. You've got a godly woman who's the daughter of Isaiah. You've got a godly grandfather. This man was surrounded by godly influences, and he's still going to choose to do evil. You don't have to raise your hand if you don't want to. Anybody here ever dealt with any prodigal children? Notice my hands up. Even if it's just for a time and they come back. But you know, the prodigal son was raised by a godly man, and the prodigal son wanted to run off and taste the things of the world. And certainly we see that happen a lot. And I know that right now I have prayer requests this thick from people in our church that have prodigals. And I'm praying for them all the time. And if you know, you don't have to know all their names. Pray for the prodigals in this fellowship. Pray for the prodigals uh, of, of Christian parents. Because that's their, their, their deepest prayer. My older brother and I grew up with the same parents. And thankfully, my brother, who just died in, in the last year, young at 63, had really surrendered his life to the Lord a lot in the last years of his life. But early on, he was just, you know, we used to say, we put him in a room with a thousand people and 998 of them could be on fire for God and two of them were up to no good and those two would be his friends in 15 minutes. And the sad part is, this is, this is something that's been dealt with for thousands of years. And so we need to dedicate our kids to the Lord. We need to be praying for them. We need to raise them up in the way that they should go. And if they're in a place where they've wandered off, keep praying and keep looking to the horizon to see if they're coming home so you can run out and greet them. Amen? Prodigal sons, prodigal daughters. God is, so, is sovereign. No suffering is wasted. And even these trials we go through. Look, I'm going to be super transparent with you. When I was a youth pastor and I would see teenagers that were a mess, I never said it out loud to anybody, but I would think their parents are really messing up because look at their kids. And there's a mentality that we can have if we're not careful, we'll look at kids and we'll assume, assume if the kids are godly, the parents must be doing everything right. And if the kids aren't, the parents must be doing everything wrong. And certainly that can be the case, but often it's not because they have free will. And so we see the first point here Sometimes godly parents raise kids that reject God. Look what it says in verse 2. But he did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nation who the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. So he has all this godly influence. He's been raised in the best possible environment. He's in a position of great blessing and great authority. Almighty God has his hand upon the nation. God has blessed them. Godly dad, godly mom, godly examples, a godly grandfather is a prophet who wrote books in the Bible. He's surrounded by every potentially wonderful way to grow up, but he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He chooses to rebel against Almighty God. Well, we may not fully See or understand how God will bring beauty from ashes or blessings through our suffering in the here and now. We need to trust that God can use even us going through difficult times with prodigals to bring about his glory. He did evil. This is one bad king. He's going to be known as the worst of the worst. His dad was one of the best of the best. He's going to be one of the worst of the worst. He even possibly ruled with his dad for about 10 years. He was at least around his dad while his dad was ruling, and he was with him, and he saw the decisions his dad made, and he was being raised up the right way and being taught the truth, and as soon as his dad's gone, he goes in the opposite direction. Hezekiah had an evil dad. When he died, he went in the opposite direction. 
to live a holy and set-apart life and make God first. And now we see the same thing as Hezekiah dies. Manasseh is going to go in the opposite direction. You can have bad kids and good parents. Again, Hezekiah, godly king. His grandpa, Isaiah, is a prophet of God. And yet we have a man who is arguably as evil as any king has ever been in Judah. And again, if we think that bad children are products of dysfunctional families, you're right, because every family's, quote, I hate that word, by the way, dysfunctional, makes me sick. It's called sinful. Anybody here raised in a sinful family? If your hand's not up, somebody lied to you somewhere, right? Because reality is, we're all, we're all sinners in need of a savior. And we all need to rest in the grace of God and trust in him. Think of God's original children. Who were they? Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve walked in the cool of the day, hung out with the creator of the universe. No death, no sorrow, no pain, no suffering. And what happened? They ate of the tree. They listened to the enemy. They doubted God's word. And Cain kills Abel. And so again, I'm not making excuses if our kids are struggling in a sense. Maybe we could do better. I, look, here's reality. All of us could, could have done some things better as parents. Who can say amen to that? I do, okay? And you, oh, well, maybe I could have done better. We could have. But at the same time, the reality is that every home has to deal with the fact that our, our houses have sin, there's struggles, there's things that choices that are made that aren't always perfect. So because our parents weren't perfect, because none of ours were, it's not an excuse for us to walk away from God. Amen? So we look to the Lord and I praise God, again, for my, my parents were godly parents, but like everyone's parents, they weren't perfect. So the first thing we see, and God has no grandchildren, sometimes godly parents raise kids that reject God. By your fruit, they will know you. So how wicked is Manasseh? How do we know he's wicked? Well, let's read the next se seven verses. Look at the beginning of verse three. He rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah, his father, raised, had, had broken down. He raised up altars for the Baals. He made wooden images and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. He also built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem my name shall be forever. He built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. Also he caused his sons to pass through the fire in the valley of the son of Hinnom. He practiced soothsaying, used witchcraft and sorcery, consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. You know you are evil when it provokes God to anger. Notice the first thing he did was undo everything his father had done that was godly. His father reestablished worship. He's going to, he's going to take uh, Asherah, who is a goddess of fertility and is literally a, a statue that's carved out or, you know, and literally is, is a pornographic god. And they would have orgies to worship this god to celebrate fertility. And he takes that god and puts it in the temple. So the people are having orgies in the temple. His father had cleaned out the temple. 
They were making sacrifices. They were celebrating Passover. They were having burnt offerings and sin offerings and love. I mean, they were worshiping God. They were praising the Lord. The trumpets were playing. God was being glorified. He takes over. He removes it all and sticks the most ungodly, wicked, vile stuff in the place that should be honoring to the Lord. Notice it says not only did he you know, build up the high places, he raised up altars to Baal. And again, Baal, that's where, again, it's from Babylon. That's where that term originates. We've been talking about Babylon a lot lately, haven't we? And Babylon, we see you know, in, in Revelation, is going to be a term used for the kingdom of the Antichrist. And here's what the Baal, you know, Babylon was known for, from the Tower of Babel on up. Man trying to reach God his own way, man in his arrogance seeing no need for God, and man succumbing to idolatry and living a life of moral depravity. So he's putting up these idols to these false gods. And again, not only to Baal, but wooden images, he worshiped all the hosts of heaven. So the hosts of heaven, he's worshiping the gods of astrology. You know, he's worshiping these gods in the sky. They have the moon god, the sun god, and they have all these gods of the stars. And he's worshiping creation rather than the creator. And the Bible tells us in the last days they will worship the creation rather than the creator. We don't worship the moon, we don't worship the sun, we don't worship the earth, we worship the one who created them all, amen? And here he is, instead of worshiping the creator, he's worshiping creation. There's people that care more about whales and trees than they do God and babies, amen? Should we be good stewards of the earth? What's the answer? We should be good stewards of the earth. We should take care of it. But we don't worship it. Uh, Come on the next uh, two or three uh, Sundays, let's see what's going to happen to the earth in the end. It's not going to be global warming or climate change. It's going to be the problem. It's going to be the fiery judgment of Almighty God, and he's going to create a new heavens and a new earth. Amen? But here you see this man who, who's been surrounded by the most godly examples you could possibly ask for, and he's doing, it's almost as if he's trying to find out what's the most wicked, vile, evil thing I can do. I want to do that, whatever that is. And sadly, we see more and more of that today. I'm dealing with one group, one family with a group of teenagers that these kids, if you would think they're demon-possessed because everything they want to do is exactly the opposite of anything God wants them to do. And they were raised in Christian homes. And it's just so heartbreaking to see it taking hold right in front of you. Young kids flipping me off and cussing me, not that I'm anybody, but you know, you would think, where in the world? And raised by godly parents that love Jesus. Man, we need to be praying more. Can I get any men to that? This is a spiritual battle we're fighting. Manasseh is that guy. He's that, I, I, whatever my dad did, whatever my grandpa did, I don't care. I'm going to be the most evil person that's ever lived. I'm going I'm to one-up King Ahaz and King Ahab. I'm going to be the worst possible person I can be. It's bad enough for Manasseh to allow idol worship into Judah, but even worse is when he corrupted the worship of the true and living God. He turned the worship and sacrifices and the praise of God into demonic worship, even in the temple. He made it a place of idolatry, again, including those things uh, in cultic worship, astrology. Verse 6 says there, he built, he built them into the courts of the house of the Lord. So the, the court of the house of the Lord, the outer courts are where the Levites could, you know, the, the, 
The people that were not Levites or priests could not enter into the holy place. They're in the outer courts. It's where they would bring their sacrifices. It's where they would come and they would lay them on the altar and the, you know, the, the blood of the lamb. And again, in four, you know, tied in four places, like a picture of the cross, the blood is shed, the bronze altar, and then they would take it into the holy place. And they would see this. And, the, and now he's taking those courts where all this sacrifices to God were being made, and he's turned it instead to a place filled with altars and idols to false gods. I've already offended all the Catholics already, so I might as well offend you one more time. I love you guys, and there, I believe there are believers within the Catholic Church. But when you walk into the Catholic Church and you see 500 statues and all this other nonsense and paintings on the wall, guys, we don't worship statues. We don't worship saints. We don't worship a church. We are the church. We worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen? We don't put our faith in an idol or a statue or a picture. We don't do that. It's nonsense. Why in the world would we do that? And that's exactly what he's doing. He's bringing stuff. He's propping up idols inside the courtyard of the place where the true and living God was worshiped. Let's just prop that up here. It's sad. It's truly tragic. Manasseh invited direct satanic influence by his approval and introduction of these occult arts into the kingdom. These things were forbidden by the Lord. It says in Deuteronomy 18, there shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or daughter pass through the fire. Passing through the fire is where they sacrificed their unborn, their newborn children to false gods. They literally burnt them alive as sacrifices. Molech, they would heat up his hands and his hands would be held out and they would put the baby on. The baby would scream and they would bang drums to drown out the baby screaming. And eventually the baby would roll off of the burning hands and fall into a fire and be incinerated. And this is what he's doing with his children as a sacrifice to these demonic idols. And we say, boy, that's horrible. We would never do anything like that. Well, some of the procedures for abortion they put in fluid that burns the baby alive, and often it's out of convenience, right? And so these are gods of fertility, and people go out and sleep around, and, and then they use this as birth control. We'll just kill the baby if it gets in the way. See, this, this evil, there's nothing new under the sun, and Manasseh is the king of it. Is it any wonder that God's angry? Is it any wonder he's looking at Manasseh, and he's being provoked to anger? What in the world? But we also see that our God's a God of love and grace and mercy, and we'll see that at the end. Why am I, why am I driving this home? I'm driving this home because I want you to see, I don't want any of you to think, well, Manasseh was kind of bad, and then he got saved. No, he was wicked. He was vile. He was the guy that everybody would vote for, again, if you were looking for the most evil person on the planet. He's perverse. He's rebelled. He's turned his back on God. Verse 7, also he caused his sons to pass through the fire, as I just mentioned. He practiced soothsaying and witchcraft and sorcery and consulted mediums and spiritists. What do we know about witchcraft, sorcery, mediums, and spiritists? They all have one thing in common. What is it? They're all demonic. Amen? They're all demonic. I've shared this story with you guys. Most of you know I had a full-time job for 35 years at the same company. I worked for a competitor for that for about five years. So about 40 years, I worked in the advertising industry. And they would assign accounts to me. And usually, if it was things that were ungodly, I just, I just would cancel all their advertising. I'd say, you take that back or I'm going to cancel all their advertising. 
Uh, I've been there a year, and the largest abortion clinic got assigned to me, and I literally took all their advertising out of everywhere and took them out of 411 and just eliminated them. You couldn't find them if you were looking for them. And uh, I told my boss I was going to do it. He didn't think I would. I did it anyway. And then we got calls from them like, we're, we, nobody can find us. Praise the Lord. That saved some babies' lives. I'm fully convinced. Praise God. Amen? Now, I had these psychics that were assigned to me. And whenever they were assigned to me, I usually just canceled their ads. And if they called and complained, I said, well, you should have known you're being canceled. You should have called me if you're a psychic, right? But, you know, <laughs> you should have known anyway. But what happened? But what happened was God put it on my heart one time these two psychics, and, and I was in Calvary San Jose, I was a youth pastor, go witness to them. Don't renew their ads, just go witness to them. See what they'll say. Maybe, who else is going to go talk to them? So I called, made appointments. The first one I went to, God really showed up. I went and I started talking to them about the Lord. I told them that I couldn't help them with their advertising because what they were doing, I said, one of two things is true. Either you guys are making it up and you're just ripping people off, or if you legitimately can see things about people, it's not coming from the Lord, it's coming from the enemy. So when being a liar and a thief is the better of the two options, that's not good. So we ended up talking for a long time. Her and her mom came to Calvary San Jose, they got saved and they walked away from it and never did it again. Thank you, Jesus. Now I went into the second one and I walked in and the woman was standing up on a high rise and she looks down at me and she says, hey, are you the guy from the yellow page? I said, yeah. She said, you have two jobs, this one and another job, and the other job is the one that is the priority of your life, and this job is the one that you do to provide for your family so you can do the other thing that's more important to you, and you don't want to be here right now because you think what I'm doing is evil. I hadn't said hello. I said, well, one of two things is true. <laughs> Either you're making stuff up, which obviously you didn't know any of that, or someone's telling it to you, so that means it's demonic, which means uh, we need to have an exorcist up in here. And she kicked me out of the place and called my boss, and my boss sent someone else to talk to her. But the point I'm making is this, is he's consulting these people on purpose. He's not... Isaiah's his grandfather. Hezekiah, he knows of prayer. He knows of worship. He was there when they were in the temple and they were worshiping God. And now he's consulting these demonic pathways, looking for answers. When my son Mark died two years ago, it's going to be two years, uh, a week from Sunday on September 17th. My family's all going to be here because we just want to be together. But when my son passed away, he didn't pass away, he went to heaven close his eyes on earth, they open him up in glory. I didn't lose my son. I know exactly where he is. Amen? But a lady from across the street came over and said, you know, I can help you talk to your son on the other side. Because, you know, that's one of my gifts. And I just want to comfort you and your family and sit down with you. And then we can, I can be a medium to get you into the presence of your son and he can talk to you. No, Thanks. Amen? Absent from the body is present with the Lord. I know where my son is, and uh, God's not inviting you to be in, in heaven to talk to my son. That's not happening. We're, and we have no desire to do that. But see, there's, there's those options still. I wanna, can I encourage you as believers? You shouldn't be even reading that stinking astrology stuff in the newspaper. Don't read it. Amen? They, they, they one of my sales meetings, they had someone come in and they were reading your fortune. And they want everybody to do it. I said, I'm not doing that. Why don't I do that? 
Don't, don't mess with any, can I get an amen to that? Don't mess with that. By the way, it's just stupid anyway. Oh, so you were born in the second moon on a Thursday afternoon, so you're going to meet a redhead this afternoon who's going to give you money. What a bunch of nonsense. But people, here's the problem. People are looking for answers in everywhere, but the one who has the answers, it's Jesus Christ and crucified and risen from the dead. Amen? So here's Manasseh. He's turning to anything and everything but the true and living God. He'll listen to what anybody has to say. Any demonic thing, he'll invite it in. Lord, help us not to follow in his footsteps. He had worship. The place of worship was now filled with a temple and temple prostitutes and statues to Asherah and whoremongering and immorality was taking place. You know what this is? There's no fear of God. How many of you guys know who Jim Baker is? Remember him from TBN? Somebody interviewed him, and I'm hopeful that it's true. Some people believe at the end of his life he truly repented. I hope that's true. But one of the things they said to him was, how could you keep doing that? How could you keep ripping people off and telling lies to make money? And how could you keep doing that? You know, didn't you love God? He goes, I love God, fine. That's not the problem. My problem was I didn't fear God. And the Bible says the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And the problem in our country is we may say we love God, but we don't fear God. Because if we fear God, we will not live in lives in total rebellion against God. Amen? We need to fear God and not fear man. And there's no fear of God. We see that so clearly here in Manasseh. Look at verses 8 and 9. It says in Manasseh, down in verse eight, or verse seven again, it says, let's go to seven. He even set a carved image, the idol which he made in the house of God, again in the temple, of which God had said to David and to Solomon, his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not again remove the foot of Israel from the land which I have appointed for your fathers. Only if you are careful to do all I have commanded them according to the whole law and to the statutes and the ordinances by the hand of God. So Manasseh seduced Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. One of the questions I got this week from somebody who was trying to prove to me that our God was a, an unjust God. He's, you know, it was a young woman. She said, well, pastor, what about when God wiped out all the Canaanites? That doesn't seem fair. Well, the Canaanites were vile, wicked, sacrificing children, immoral, and God gave them hundreds of years to repent, and they continued on in it. Now, who were the Canaanites? They were the people that were in the land of promise. Canaan land, Amen. And that's when they passed over the river Jordan and they went in to inherit the land flowing with milk and honey. God gave them victory over the Canaanites. You know what this verse says? Manasseh was worse than the Canaanites. As vile as they were, he's even more vile. And he's supposed to be the king over God's people. This is why we don't put our faith in men. We put our faith in God. Amen? I, why do we hand out Bibles here? I'll tell you why. Because I don't want you to just trust anything I have. You, you know what? You need to hold every pastor in this church and any church you go to and anybody here on the radio, and you need to take everything they say, and you need to line it up with Scripture and see if it lines up or not. Amen? Hold them accountable. Hold me accountable, please. Manasseh, he's the king, and he thinks he can just do whatever he wants. And the Word of God is saying he's worse 
than the people that God had Israel come in and wipe out because they were so vile. And now God's own people are more vile than the Canaanites were because of Manasseh. Again, I'm belaboring this point because it's going to blow you away how this chapter ends. Because this guy is as bad as it gets. I'm glad, you know, I meet kids with Old Testament names. I haven't met any Manassehs. I'm thankful. <laughs> Even though he's going to end well, he doesn't do well for most of his life. He's got about 50 years of a mess. And so we see your point number two there is by your fruit they will know you. What kind of fruit did Manasseh have? He had rotten fruit. He was living a rotten, ungodly life. Faith without works is dead. Fellowship or rebellion, choose one. Is he in fellowship or rebellion? What's the answer? Open rebellion against God, doing everything he can, contrary to what the word of God says. Shaking his fist at God, if you will. I'm surprised God didn't just smoke him with lightning. But I'm glad he didn't because it shows that God has enough grace for me too. Amen? Where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. Again, I know I'm belaboring it, but I want us to be so clear about just how wicked this man was. He did all he could to pervert the national character and totally destroy the worship of the true and living God, and he succeeded. He led Judah into demonic worship. They were worshiping demons, and they were worshiping Satan. They were burning their children alive. It just doesn't get any more vile than this, and his dad was a godly man. Lord, help. How superficial had the nation's compliance with Hezekiah's reforms had been because without a strong leader, the sinful people turned right back to their old evil lifestyle. One of the things I tell people often, I won't call you because if I call you, I got to sustain you. What I mean by that is, I, if you're looking to another man or another woman to be the one that helps you. Again, you can be discipled. You should be. Kept people pouring into your life. You should do that. But eventually, you've got to have your own relationship with the Lord. Amen? You've got to have that, your own intimate fellowship with God. And you can't get that by just, you know, you know siphoning the, you know, the blood out of somebody else. God has no grandchildren. Well, Manasseh, he's such an evil, vile, wicked man. And again, we see that the people are easily moved back in the other direction. And again, so Manasseh made Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil, leading others into sin. God's going to hold people accountable. One of the difficult things about being a leader is that others will follow your example. And I believe God will hold leaders accountable for those they lead astray. It's a pretty scary thing. James 3, 1 is a verse I've memorized. You know, my brethren, let not many of you be teachers, knowing you shall receive a stricter judgment. You know, when we are leading anybody in anything, we need to be careful how we lead them because we will be accountable to Almighty God. By the way, the tradition is Isaiah was, how did Isaiah die? Who knows what the tradition is? How did he die? Anybody know? He was sawn in two. You know what else tradition says? Manasseh had it done, his grandson. Because Isaiah was preaching the truth against the evils of his grandson, and Manasseh went out hating what his, to silence what his grandfather said and had his grandfather sawn in two. Manasseh is as evil and wicked and as vile a human being that has ever walked this planet. And he is the leader of the children of Israel. 
Manasseh, as evil as it gets, again, worshiping false gods, Baal and Asherah, Molech, turned the house of God into a brothel, burned his own children alive in worship to Molech, practiced soothsaying, used witchcraft and sorcery, consulted mediums and spiritists, provoked God to anger because of his evil that he did in the sight of the Lord, as evil as it gets. Point number four, God loves us enough to do whatever it takes to get our attention. So Isaiah, no doubt, was speaking into his life. He didn't want to hear it, so he had, his, he had his grandfather sawn in two. His own father had raised him in the truth. No doubt there were other of the Levites and the people that had been serving that are no doubt speaking truth into his life. He doesn't want to hear it. He's not going to respond to it. I'm the king. I'll do what I want. Does anybody know what the satanic credo is? Do as thou will. Doest as thou will. That's their credo. Do whatever you want. Feed yourself. Do what your flesh wants. By the way, gut feeling. Lose the gut feeling. Be led by the Holy Spirit. Can I get amen to that? Don't be moved by your desires, your flesh, or your intuition. None of Holy Spirit. Amen? Now, point number three here. God loves us enough to do what it takes. Now, watch what he's going to do. And this is so the grace of God. Look what it says in verse 10. And the Lord spoke to Manasseh. And his people, but they what? They what? They would not listen. The Lord is speaking directly to them, and they're na 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 na. I had a friend in high school. I would actually say for a couple years he was my best friend. He was a basketball player, as a football player. We play. We went, we ended up going to the same college together, and we all we worked out together all the time. And he grew up in kind of a rough situation. And every time, and he would come over to my house for dinner. And every time I tried to talk to him about the Lord, and I'm not exaggerating, this is what he'd do. No, 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 no. He'd cover his ears. And, go, and start going, ah, don't talk to me about that. Don't talk to me about that. Don't talk to me about that. And you know what? When I see Manasseh here, that's what I think they're doing. The Lord's talking to them, but they won't listen. And it's frustrating when we as believers are sharing with somebody uh, things about that will impact their eternity, and they just don't want to hear it, and we can't force it on them, but we can pray for them. And pray that, and here's my prayer, God, do whatever it's going to take to get their attention. Now watch what happens. They won't listen, so God just let them all burn. Is that what it says? Here's what it says in verse 11. Therefore the Lord brought upon them the captains of the army of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze feathers, and carried him off to Babylon. Now, can he ignore that? When they, with hooks, what they do is they would put a hook through their nose, and then they would just pull him by their nose. Now, I've never had this happen to me, but I have an idea if there's a hook in my nose and they're pulling me, I'm probably going. And they're dragging him to Babylon. Fetters mainly are, can be both on your hands, but mainly it's on your feet. Samson was in bronze fetters. And what they do is they're like chains and they chain their feet together so they cannot escape and they, they're moving and often they'll do their wrists. So here's Manasseh doing whatever he wants, this vile king. And all of a sudden now he's being pulled by the nose. And notice how many other people did they take from the kingdom according to this verse? Zero. They took Manasseh, left the people there. You're coming with us. He's being drugged like this. And guess what? He's going to listen this time. This time he can't get away from this. God is willing. Praise God for his grace that he loves us enough to do what's necessary sometimes. Amen? And he drags him away. And look what happens in verse 12. Now, 
When he was in affliction, he implored the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. Here's what happens. They drag him away. They throw him in a prison cell or a dungeon. He's in a place of torment. And finally he goes, hey, God, could you help me out? Now, look, is he crying out to the sorcerers? He, that ain't working. Amen. Where's, this, where's the witchcraft? Where's the idols? He comes to a place where he's at the end of himself. And when he's at the end of himself, what does he do? He looks up. And that's, again, my prayer for so many people that I care about right now that are so far away from God. And my prayer is constantly, please, Lord. I think my prayer request is going to be, please, Lord, bring some hooks and some fetters. Let's go. <laughs> Amen? Let's bring, Lord, I, you know, please bring them to the end of themselves that they might look up. And I've seen God do it. Have anybody ever experienced that before? Somebody's hard-headed and then God does what's necessary and now they have to, he had nowhere else to turn now. He's by himself in Babylon, surrounded by the enemy. And now what does he do? He looks up and he cries out to the Lord. You know, it's interesting. In 2 Kings, it gives us more of a warning before this would happen. It says, The Lord said through his servants to the prophets, King Manasseh of Judah has done many detestable things. He is even more wicked than the Amorites who lived in the land before Israel. He has led the people of Judah into idolatry. So this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I will bring such disaster on Jerusalem and Judah that the ears of those who hear about it will tingle with horror. I will judge Jerusalem by the same standard I use for Samaria, by the same measure I use against the family of Ahab. I will wipe away the people from Jerusalem as one wipes a dish and turns it upside down. Then I will reject even those few of my people who are left, and I will hand them over to plunder to their enemies, for they have done great evil in my sight and have angered me since have angered me more than anyone since they came out of Egypt. So he says earlier, this is what I'm going to do. Now the fetters have come, the hooks have come. He's been drug away. And he cries out to the Lord. Manasseh, the king over God's people, had turned his back on God. He would not listen. When we won't listen, God will, has ways of making us pay attention. God not opposed to using even the world to bring judgment. He's bringing judgment through the Assyrians who we already know are wicked, vile people that one angel killed 185,000 of them. And that God still chooses to use them and their army to drag him away. God may use the penal system. Someone might need to go to jail. They might need to go to rehab. They might, they might need to lose everything. They might need to lose their job. They may need to be, whatever it's going to take, whatever it's going to take to get them looking up, it's worth it. So they drag him away again, and these hooks were only used with animals typically. And again, Babylon, they, Assyria is on the outskirts of Babylon, the land of pagan idolaters that live godless lives of moral depravity are being used to bring affliction on Manasseh who lived as a pagan idolater and a godless life of depravity. God's using his own people, in a sense, to bring justice upon him. People that are committing the very same sin that he is. God uses idolaters to bring judgment upon Manasseh. Look at verse 12 and 13. Again, when he was in his affliction, he implored the Lord. He humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. Again, I just read that, but I'm repeating that because why would you have to humble yourself? What would you be when you need to be humbled? What is it? Prideful. He was prideful. 
Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. It was pride that got Satan thrown out of heaven. Amen? Pride is the root of most sin, a lot of sin. Amen? Pride and sin all have the same, the, the same letter in the middle, I. Amen? And so because of his pride, being a prideful man, he was humbled by God. Verse 13, and he prayed to him and he received his entreaty, heard his supplication, brought him back to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Now look at this. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Praise the Lord, amen? Now it doesn't say, and then he said he believed in God. It says that Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. See, he'd been worshiping everything else the world had to offer. He'd been living a life of total depravity. He'd been living a life of total evil and destruction, caring about nothing or anything else. He's brought to the end of himself. He looks up, he cries out to God, and now God uses these heavy-duty consequences for his sinful behavior to get this man to look up and repent. Now, if the verse ends there, if that's all we see, we'd have to wonder whether or not he really repented. But look at the next point there, verse 14 to 17. True repentance is reflected in a change of heart and behavior. It's one thing. Look, I did prison ministry for about 15 years. And almost every prisoner that I would talk to was so desperate that many, many, many of them wanted to get right with God. And many of them were sincere. But many of them, it was just a way of hopefully playing an angle to maybe get out. This will look good before the parole board. Hey, chap, you know, chaplain. Hey, chap, can you, can you write me a letter and let them know how my life has changed and how I'm serving the Lord? And Sometimes it's true and sometimes it's not. And so if this verse ends, we don't really know for sure. Has he really surrendered his life to the Lord? Is Manasseh just saying this because he's got a hook through his nose and he wants to go home? Look at the next point, verse 14. And, it, and this he built a wall outside the city of David. On the west side of Gihon, the valley, as far as the entrance of the fish gate, he enclosed the offal. He raised it to a very great height. Then he put military captains in the fortified cities of Judah. Okay, so he goes home and he starts doing king stuff. He builds up a wall around the city to protect them from attacks of the enemy. But here's the verse that we really want to pay attention to. Look what it says in verse 15. He took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord and all the altars he had built in the mount of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem, and he cast them out of the city. Repentance is a change of mind, a change of heart, but it's a change of behavior. And these things that he had propped up, he's now tearing down. Now that he recognizes that the Lord is God and all these other things are, are a contrary to God, enemies of God, he's removing them all. This is a mark of true repentance. His life has changed. He received the entreaty. The Lord heard his supplication. He heard the supplication of Manasseh. My prayer is you, every time you hear his name for the rest of your life, you'll think the most wicked, vile man who ever lived. And God forgave him. God showed that man grace. That means that nobody is beyond salvation. Amen? That means that God can redeem anybody. A lot of times when we want to grade ourselves, we like to pick Manassas to be judged against. You know, when I talk to people, where are you, and where are you at with the Lord? Well, I'm not, you know, I'm not really a sinner. I mean, 
You know, I never killed anybody. Nice high bar you got for yourself. You know, I'm no Hitler. Well, thank God for that. I'm no Osama bin Laden. I'm not Jeffrey Dahmer, you know? And well, man, okay, well, that bar, I think we can all jump over that one. But where are you at with Jesus? How are you compared to him? And here we see that his life's been changed. This evil, wicked, vile man, Manasseh, has now turned around and his behavior has changed and he's throwing out the very things he used to worship. And guys, for some of us as believers, when you gave your life to Jesus, some of us hold on to Agag. You know, you know the picture of the Amalekites and Saul was told to wipe them all out. And what does he do? He brings back Agag, the king of the Amalekites, like the king of the flesh, right? The Amalekites are a picture of the flesh. And sometimes as believers, we give our life to Jesus, but we hang on to that one part of the flesh we just don't want to get rid of. That habit that we have, that, that uh, thing we're addicted to, that's something we look at online that's inappropriate, some form of entertainment, whatever it is, and so often we want to hold on to that. And the reality is, if we've truly repented, we want to get that thing as far away from me as possible. And Lord, help me. Amen? And it doesn't mean we won't be tempted, but I love this picture because he knew the Lord was God. And that's where it begins. Until we know that the Lord is God, we're headed for destruction. When I talk to people about the Lord, you know, when they find your pastor, people have questions. I love it. You know, I, I, I get into the conversation quick. Yeah, I'm born again believer. I actually pastor a church here in town. You should come sometime. I say that all the time. Carry cards. I got them in my pocket right now. Carry them everywhere. I'm in the grocery store. Yeah, you should come to church sometime. And I talk to people about the Lord. And a lot of times you get them going, well, I've got questions for a pastor. Beautiful. Divine appointment. That's why I'm here. What's going on? Why would, why would God save this person and not save me? Because he repented and you won't. Amen? Manasseh, you could say, is more evil than pretty much anybody who's ever lived. But why did God save him? And not somebody who seemed to live a good life. Because he repented. Because he recognized the Lord for who he is. He surrendered his life to him. He started walking with God. That's why he saved. Guys, we're not saved because we're good. And we're not so bad that we can't be saved. We're saved because, not because of who we are. Because of whose we are. Because we belong to him. Amen? So he builds a wall to begin to protect his own people. But then he took away all the foreign gods threw them all out. Maybe there's some things in your house that need to be thrown out. Maybe there's stuff on your phone that you need to delete. Maybe there's some things, you know, if you're right at things, you pluck it out. You know, things that we can allow to get into our life as believers and hold on to. He took it all away. Turn to him with brokenness of soul and he will not only forgive you, but bring you out again and give you an opportunity of undoing some of the evil things that marred your past. See, it, you know, he, he had destroyed the idols, and they were the, he was the one that brought them up. You know, when you give your life to the Lord, one of the things you really want to do is you want to undo the things you've done. Lord, can I fix this? Please. And that's exactly what Manasseh is doing. Look, it says there in verse 16. It said, and he also repaired the altar of the Lord. He sacrificed peace offerings and thank offerings on it and commanded Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. See, he was leading them all into destruction. He gets right with God and he's leading them all back to the Lord. He had been the one that tore down the altars, you know, the idols, 
and, and, and built him up. Now he's tearing him down. He's the one that got rid of the sacrificial system. He's put everything back into the temple. They're sacrificing to the true and living God yet again. See, again, that's the heart of repentance. Not that I walked an aisle and I prayed a prayer and I got the get out of hell free card because I prayed with Pastor Dave on a Sunday and I put it in my wallet. True repentance is seen in a life that is radically changed. Stephen Curtis Chapman used to have a song that shows you how old I am called What About the Change? What about the difference? Where's the change? He repaired the altar. He made sacrifices. He commanded Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. Belief was reflected in his behavior. Manasseh was truly repentant. He'd done 180 degrees away from where he was to fully surrendering to the Lord. Notice what it says. Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed in the high places, but only to the Lord their God. Part of the problem is they did get rid of a lot of the altars to the false gods, but they used to believe that the higher up you were, like Babel, the higher up you were, the closer you were to God. So when they would worship, they wanted to be on the highest mountain they could find. Now we know that the sacrifices were to only be made in Jerusalem. That's the place that God wanted it to take place. Why? Because who's going to be crucified there? Jesus. So this is where the, the blood of the lamb you know, this is where the blood was shed. It's all pointing to Jesus. But they would go to these altars, kind of like the Tower of Babel and the highest. So what was started happening, things were getting better, but there were still those that would go worship to the true and living God, but they would do it on the high places because they thought that made them closer to God. See, 50, 50 plus years of a mess isn't going to all get fixed overnight. For 50 years, he's trained them up in the wrong way. 50 years of paganism, again, won't be counteracted by four or five years of walking with the Lord. Let's finish up. Now, the rest of the Acts of Manasseh, point number five there, no one is so good they don't need to be saved, and no one is so bad they're beyond salvation. Now, the rest of the Acts of Manasseh, his prayer to his God, the words of the seers who spoke to him in the name of the Lord, God of Israel. Indeed, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel. And his prayer of how God received his entreaty and all his sin and trespass, and the sites where he built high places, and set up wooden images and carved images before he was humbled. Indeed, they are written among the sayings of Hosea. It says, so Manasseh rested with his fathers. They buried him in his own house. Then his son Ammon reigned in his place. In Second Chronicles, it says this, a better description. It says, then the Lord appeared to Solomon by night, and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up heaven and there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. That's exactly what Manasseh just did. That verse right there that we quote so often, Manasseh, had been walking in evil and idolatry and he turned and he cried out to God and God healed the land. God heard his prayers from heaven. God heard his supplications. And again, it says, for now I have chosen and sanctified this house that my name will be here forever, my eyes and my heart perpetually. Manasseh rested with his fathers. You know what that means? His dad, his grandfather, other godly kings, he was resting with them. So even though he had had 50 plus years of evil idolatry, in the end he repented. And because he did, he wasn't only buried with his fathers, but he's spending eternity in heaven with the other godly men that had gone before him. Aren't you thankful for God's grace? Amen?
People read this stuff and they, like when some, some people believe that Jeffrey Dahmer got saved in prison, and I hope he did. And some people will say, if Jeffrey Dahmer can go to heaven and a sweet old lady can't, I don't care about that God. And they get mad. And some people get angry, like they're mad that Jeffrey Dahmer, I'm thankful because it just means our God is gracious. Amen? It means that where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. We want to see people saved. He surrendered his life. We're going to see him in heaven. I'm glad we're going to be in heaven forever and ever and ever because I got conversations I want to have with some of these people. Kind of get an amen to that. I'd love to sit down with Manasseh by the crystal sea and have a Coke and say, dude, what were you thinking? You know what I mean? Right? Bro, help me out here. And praise God for his grace. Finally, uh, look what happens. So Ammon takes his place. This is the whole of his life here in five verses. We'll end with this. Ammon was 22 years old when he became king. And he reigned how long in Jerusalem? Two years. And he did what in the sight of the Lord? He did evil. So his dad did 50 years of evil. He watched it. He saw his dad repent and get right with God. But instead of learning from what he had done and surrendering his life to the Lord, he looked only at the evil that he did. And he was, was moved by his flesh. And Ammon, again, just like his dad of the first 50 years, when he should have been following his dad of the last five years. Amen? Notice what he says. He did evil in the sight of the Lord as his father Manasseh had done. For Ammon sacrificed to all the carved image which his father Manasseh had made and served them and did not humble himself before the Lord. Now that's something his dad did. His dad had acted evilly, but then he humbled himself. As his father Manasseh had humbled himself, but Ammon trespassed more and more. Then his servants conspired against him and killed him in his own house. Manasseh was drug off and repented. Ammon refused to repent. And he was, he was assassinated in his own house. But the people of the land executed all who had conspired against King Ammon. Then the people of the land made his son Josiah king in his place. Chapter 34. Anybody know what kind of man Josiah was? Was he a godly, was he a godly man or a wicked man? What was he? I, I'll tip you off. Who knows the Bible pretty well? Joshua Camper? What's his son's name? It's not Manasseh. It's Josiah. Can I get an amen to that? It's not Ammon. So look, we see this. The, I just wish somebody would just sit down and make this a movie. Can I get an amen to that? Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. Let's just have people stand and just, because guys, the Bible's amazing. And when we look at this, we see what's going on all around us. People are being, and we all have our own free will. And, and again, Josiah raised in an ungodly home is going to be one of the most godly men we've ever seen. Manasseh raised in a godly home, one of the most wicked men we've ever seen. But praise God that in the end, he repented. You know what? I pray that we would live lives that if our children follow our example, they get closer to the Lord, not further from him. Amen? May we be a Christ-like example. So in closing, God has no grandchildren. Sometimes godly parents raise kids that reject God. Again, we want to raise them in the right way. We want to do everything we can to help give them a good foundation, but they have free will. By fruit they will, your fruit they will know you, either fellowship or rebellion. Choose one. Are you walking with the Lord? Are you walking contrary to the Lord? God loves us enough to do whatever it takes to get our attention. Can I encourage you? Pray that. Four people that you've been praying for, some that you may have given up on, don't give up. Keep praying and say, Lord, do whatever it takes, please, to get their attention. True repentance is reflected by a change of heart and behavior. 
No one is so good they don't need to be saved, and no one is so bad they're beyond salvation, and then there can be no greater heartache than living a life that leads your children away from the Lord. You know, after Manasseh repented, how his heart would have been broken if he had lived to see the life that Ammon lived would have broken his heart. Lord, we thank you. We praise you. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your word. This chapter has really been convicting and exhorting to me as I've studied these last several days. And Lord, I pray that we would take what we have learned and apply it to our lives. Lord, may we not be satisfied with saved souls and wasted lives. May we not live so much like the world that nobody recognizes we're Christians. May, Lord, if we're living lives where we're holding on to things of our past or things that are contrary to your will, Lord, help us to set those things aside. And Lord, we pray for the prodigal sons and daughters. We pray for family and friends that have walked away from you. The whole deconstruction movement, Lord, be, do what is necessary to bring people to the end of themselves that they might look up. And we ask these things in your holy and your precious name we pray. And all God's people said... Amen.